Oh, kids, you are welcome to go with Jackie. Um, Pastor Debbie's still in Orlando getting getting Addie settled. So Jackie's going to teach children's church today. Our, uh, let's see here. Yeah, I think I'm on. Um, our gospel reading this morning is uh, from Luke chapter 6, verses 16 through 26. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him, because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. This is the gospel of our Lord. Right. Um, well, this morning I'm uh, going to attempt to have some visual aids here. We'll see. I do it for a little bit, and then I'm so dejected by how badly it works. I give up for a while, and then I try again. So, but I feel like Josh and I are we're basically the same person, right? You're just better looking. Um, so we're so in sync. He's going to help me. Usually, I'd have to have the clicker, and that's always the thing that's tricky about this. Um, but we've been in this uh, season of Epiphany. This is the sixth week in it. We've talked about it, that during this time of year, you kind of have these seasons of light and of illumination. And just like the multitudes who gather around Christ in Luke 6, so we're invited in this moment to see our world now visibly and more clearly through the light of Christ as he teaches us what it means to follow God and to live in light of his kingdom. This is a part of Luke's gospel that parallels what's often called the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. You'll note here that Luke gives us the detail at the very beginning that Jesus is standing on a level plain. It's very likely that um, he gave the sermon that he gives both in Matthew and in Luke many times over the course of his ministry. This is part of it, the core of his teaching. Um, and I would submit to you that whereas Matthew is kind of helping to show us that moment in his ministry where he's particularly wanting to communicate in the same way that Moses was kind of went up on the mount to encounter in that thin space between heaven and earth, God, and then bring down that revelation. Um, so now, as Luke deals with the plane, he's kind of speaking about, as Luke does in both the first work and the second work, he has Acts, the way in which... God doesn't just expect us to meet him, but God actually comes to all of the nations, to all peoples, kind of meeting them right where they are, on the plain. Uh, in this teaching that Jesus gives here, he gives us these four paired sets. 
right? So you have Jesus talks about who is blessed. Blessed are the poor, the hungry, the mourning, the persecuted, and the woe to the rich, the full, those who are laughing, and those who are honored. And in a way, these four sets, um, I would submit to you that this is important. Again, Jesus is he's kind of reaching out here, um, broadly speaking, to all the people who would have been in that area, both perhaps in this moment, Jews and Gentiles. Uh, four has particular significance and appeal because you have the four cardinal directions. You would have had the four elements in Jesus' day, uh, the four causes which were understood to be the cause. Everything has four different causes to it in philosophy. Um, A little bit east of where Jesus and all of them were, the four noble truths. But four kind of had this this way in which it it spoke to a wholeness or an integrity. And here is Jesus gives us these two sets of four. We're kind of understanding these, giving us a complete picture of what it's like to have a blessed life uh, and something maybe less than that, to be in a high estate and a low estate. Now, as he does this, he's kind of covering some of what we could call these basic instinctual needs that we have um, as people. And so he's talking here at some level about wealth, about pleasure. Uh, you could call it either happiness or uh, just a sense of painlessness. That's something that we seek to avoid in this life, avoid mourning, uh, and then being held in high esteem or in honor. And as he does that, he kind of captures in it something of the idea of what blessedness would be. Um, The word that's used in Greek is he says the word blessed, makairos. Sometimes there's another word that could also be used that. But what they're trying to capture in that is this thing that is the human life at its fullest, at its best. Just as we would say um, that there are these things, all of us kind of do instinctively reach towards those things that help us to reach that, right? We're naturally hungry, we eat. Eating is something that satiates or satisfies us. There's something, too, that that allows a human to live at its fullest. But partly what Jesus is trying to help us see here as he seemingly reverses those things that we would have expected to lead us to a blessed life is that there's always going to be pieces of our lives Let's just say, uh, maybe, maybe I could say it this way, that if you were to look at me and say, oh, Cody's living this extremely blessed life, which of course I am because I'm here worshiping with all of you, a mistake of that would be to say, you know, the reason that Cody's living this blessed life is because he's 5'11", right? That you need to be 5'11 in order to live a blessed life. I look taller, but it's because I'm so thin. Um, <laughs> Right, so, so there's a mistake there, and that's partly what Jesus is doing as he upends here is, is that we would put all of our stock, all of our bearings and saying, well, if I could just get more wealth, more pleasure, more happiness, more honor, more esteem, then finally that would be the objective sense, and people could say that my life was a beautiful one. What Jesus is pointing out here is, is that those things that we might try to invest in are not actually fixed or permanent. Right? When you listen to him kind of talking about why is it, he doesn't actually say that, it's blood, like, that poorness or poverty or hunger is blessed as such. It's just a good thing. It will lead to a good life if you're constantly hungry. What he says as he teaches here is, is that blessed are you who are hungry for you will be filled. That the state that you currently find yourself in is not one that's permanent. Right? And it's something that Probably you or I could say things that we've either had in our lives or things that we've been that we are no longer, or maybe that we are now. Um, that feeling of something that has changed, 
Uh, I think of, um, there was a, an, ancient, an ancient thinker who said, I consider no man happy or blessed until he is dead. Um, partly on this idea that, that you know, the, the fortunes of our lives can change so much. And what Jesus here wants us to fix our hearts and our minds to is the thing that actually is permanent, that remains, or at least not to make an assessment before then. Um, one of the things that many, many people in sort of Jesus was giving the sermon would have been familiar with in the ancient world was called the Wheel of Fortune. Josh, if you would for me here. Uh, part of my, my visual aids. I never met an art illustration I didn't like. Um, but here you, you can see there is a wheel. I don't know how well you can see the wheel. But on the wheel, on the rim of it, you have uh, six or so people there. In the center, you have a woman who's spinning this wheel of fortune. And that would have been the goddess fortune. And then on the, on the rim of it, you have, normally there's six people on this wheel. On a lot of the versions, one of the other ones, you'll actually see there's usually four different positions. The one on the bottom, the person who's on the bottom of the wheel, which sometimes is accompanied with the phrase, I have no kingdom. And then the person that would be on your guys's, is that you would also be on your left. So the person going on their way up, which is I shall reign, the person on top, which is I reign, and then the person to your right, which is I did reign. And the idea is, is that this wheel is constantly spinning, right? For all of us, in all places, at all times, nobody's ever just in one fixed position at a moment. There's going to be a time where you're going to be on top, and there's going to be a time when you're on bottom. And so the only question is, how do you respond to this, right? And this is, again, Jesus' audience themselves would have been wrestling with this. The first approach <laughs> is to just fix your eyes on the top. One of the funny things about that prior one is that if you look, I don't know if you can see, but the people who are all on the rim of the wheel, most of the eyes are fixed at the person who's on the very, very top there. They're all looking because that's where you want to be. The person who's reigning, who's on top, who has the wealth, the honor, the esteem, the pleasure. And then in that next image here, this is actually another one, uh, another version. It was in 1883. Oh, if you can go back for me, just one there. Uh, that's an 1883 oil on canvas painting by Edward Byrne Jones. It's also called the Wheel of Fortune. I guess you can't really see it in this. But there's three figures there. And the important thing that I wanted you to see is, is that there's a guy who's kind of in the middle who has a scepter and a crown, a king, right? And the Wheel of Fortune is turning. And there's somebody uh, that's stepping on his head who has a chain on, was either a prisoner or a slave. And sort of the idea there in this response, being able to fix your eyes on top, is you're going to have to climb over some people to get to the very top of the Wheel of Fortune. And even then, because of the way the wheel is rolling, that person is actually never going to get there. And as I was just sort of thinking about some of those major issues that tend to divide our culture, our society right now, whether that's... Help here, is it off? This is, you know, I'm telling you, there's something about the visual aids. There's a demon in our technology system here. 
um, we're trying to exercise it. So, um, so that would be just kind of one of the one of the simplest ways. But there was another way that a lot of Jesus's audience would have heard, and it would have rather than fixing your eyes on the very top of the wheel, it'd be fixing your eyes on the axis. What is the part of the wheel that doesn't change? What's the part that remains constant, that endures throughout? And some of Jesus's contemporaries would have talked about this path to the happy or the blessed life as being found in, and Pastor Jeff has kind of talked about these are the four cardinal virtues, another four you would have had in the ancient world. But that the virtuous life is the one, it's sufficient in and of itself for blessedness. Everything else about your life can change, and that's, for a lot of these folks, neither good nor bad. It's just the material upon which virtue itself can act. You actually see a lot of this even in some of the wisdom literature in Scripture. I mean, think of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, our lives are but a breath and a vapor. Right? Or you think of the Psalms where it says, better is the little that the righteous has than the much of the wicked. There is a teaching in that that you don't get yourself too fixed on chasing honor or chasing wealth, so much as trying to lead a life that kind of taps into those things that don't change about our lives. You can always give to people what they're owed or due. You can always practice self-control. You can always plot the best course of action and be courageous. I think that part of the gift of it is, is that it realizes Again, that any time we try to chase those things and go up the wheel of fortune, it will always leave us, ultimately, empty-handed and empty-hearted. But Jesus is going to take us one level deeper in this. I think this is kind of the, the greatness of what he does here in Luke and what Luke does so well. Um, he's going to have us fix our eyes beyond the wheel altogether. One of the things, this is the, the final, I promise, the final image. There's another wheel of fortune. This wheel of fortune, though, is in the Siena Cathedral, which is, a, it's, it's got to be, at least in terms of works of art, one of the wonders of the world. This is just one panel in the floor, and the whole floor is made up of panels of this. Um, but in this wheel of fortune, one of the things I want you to see is there's four figures in the corner. And you'd think that those figures, if you know a lot of Christian art, would either be the prophets or the evangelists. Um, but here, in this particular Wheel of Fortune, it's actually taken from, uh, again, it would have been some of Jesus' contemporaries uh, that weren't uh, Jews or uh, later Christians. You have Seneca, you have Epictetus, Aristotle, Marcus Aurelius. And actually, Seneca's quote in there is that great fortune is great slavery. And I think partly what we see in this Wheel of Fortune, this work of art that's in a church, is the way in which Christ himself, just as he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill and to perfect it. So he's gathering here this wisdom tradition, this teaching, not to abolish it, but to perfect it, to put it in its proper light and place. The other thing that's really notable about this wheel of fortune is you'll see there's nobody turning it, right? The goddess fortune is gone. And I think in some ways, you don't have Christ here in this wheel of fortune because just like the empty tomb is a judgment on death, so Christ's absence here is a judgment on the wheel itself, that the one who's going to ultimately remake the world will undo the effects of the wheel of fortune in our lives. The same way that Paul, in, in the passage that we actually read from 1 Corinthians, talks about if our hope is ultimately in just this world, we are most to be pitied because we're not riding that wheel all that well. 
But if Christ is raised from the dead, then that means that even this wheel itself will be subjected to him. So what does this mean then for us this morning as Christ gives us these blessings and these woes? Well, I think it reminds us that we have so many wonderful examples in his life and in the life of the church of how to live beyond the wheel of fortune, being able to see indeed who he is. Thinking a little bit about a, uh, in that, just thinking of that first blessing, that first woe, blessed are the poor for yours is the kingdom of hell, uh, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Um, the way in which, um, let me come back to that one. Um, the, the two right below it, um, which is blessed are you who hunger, blessed are you who uh, weep. And then Jesus, this is these particular, the two sets in the middle of the four that he gives are the ones that he actually reverses. You'll note that not always, uh, wealth and honor don't always flip in one's life. Um, some people are wealthy their whole life. Some people are not. Um, and so he doesn't necessarily say that in these. But for being hungry and then weeping and being full and laughing, everybody experiences the alternation. Even uh, if you're really full right now, you will be hungry again. And even if you're laughing right now, uh, you'll weep again. Um, one of the powerful things I think Christ counsels us to here um, as he teaches is that we're, we're to kind of submit those things to be sanctified in our lives. Uh, we go through these seasons that we've talked about in the church, and one of the gifts of the season that we have upcoming here in a couple weeks is sometimes when we are full, having that reminder that we are dependent ultimately on God, and so Christians often forego those simple pleasures of eating, of sleeping, or other things as a way to remind ourselves that we're ultimately not chained to that, but um, that we seek to be dependent, to receive everything uh, ultimately from God. I think another thing that strikes me as so powerful when I'm thinking about this particular pairing, the hunger and the weeping, uh, and that we, of course, we witness in Christ's own life, is this way in which he and which Paul, uh, if you go through the New Testament, they so passionately seek to be in the presence of Christ. Right? Paul himself speaks about having and being absent from so many things, so many consolations. And yet he himself finds a way as he counsels all these churches to be a part of, to be always gathering with the people of God, always worshiping, reading the scriptures, being in prayer, because his conviction is, is that you ha if you have Christ, you have all things. Singing about two particular Christians in light of this. One of them being um, a man I mentioned a couple weeks ago, an early Christian named Benedict, um, who, who gathered all these Christians around him who wanted him to be uh, somebody who'd help kind of lead, mentor, guide them. Uh, and then later on, uh, as he was their leader and he was so strict, they tried to poison him. Um, right? There's more than one way, I guess, to get rid of a pastor. But um, it was said also about his life that he was constantly weeping. And the reason ultimately that he constantly wept, it was not for the sake of, he often probably contemplated the way in which he himself and the world falls short of what God desires for it. But what that also moved him towards was contemplating the goodness and the grace of God. There's something in his life that God was sanctifying, though his weeping, his sadness, so that it might be this testament to who God was. There's another early Christian named Philip um, who had said uh, you could always find he uh, would do strange things like shave off half his beard or wear 
crazy clothes. He was always telling jokes. People would sometimes go to seek him out. And when they did, they would find him, it said that they would find him with another person who was reading this book of jokes to him. He'd give people all this strange, sort of funny counsel about their spiritual lives. But it was said that when he meet, met people or strangers on the street, they would be filled with such joy after having encountered him that they'd actually forget why they were even there in the first place. He would talk about leaving Christ for Christ, meaning that he had this sense that there were these times where we'd be gathered in worship or in prayer, uh, and you might have to leave that space to go out and find Christ, as Christ says that he would be amongst the poor, amongst the broken, amongst the stranger. And there's just something powerful that as God took the laughter that was a part of his life, the joy, the humor that he took in all things, and allowed it to be this blessing to those around him, that God was sanctifying that for the sake of his kingdom. Thinking of that last one, blessed are you who are persecuted. Pastor Jeff and I had that, there was a, we were kind of going through this idea of a culture of honor. And I think one of the other Christians that I, I was thinking that I just felt like exhibited this so well to me. His name was Gregory. And he kind of was, his family was really well-to-do. This was at a time when the, the church and civil government was pretty close together. His family was really well-known. He had kind of ascended and gone into city government, had kind of ascended the heights, but he never really wanted to be there. Ultimately, he, he wants to go and spend his life dedicating it to prayer dedicating it to doing uh, the same works that Jesus did in his life. You know, kind of, again, caring for the sick, for the poor, feeding the hungry. The people in the city really wanted them, him to be the church leader, uh, and he really did not. So they said, Gregory, you need to be the church leader. And he said, I'm not going to do it, sorry. So then they said, okay. Then they went to the church, uh, they went to the, at that time, the, the city leader and said, hey, we're going to have, we need you to make Gregory become our leader Gregory heard about this, so he wrote a letter saying, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to refuse to do it. The people in the city caught and intercepted his letter, and then they submitted another letter and, and to convince the, the city leader there to make Gregory the leader. So Gregory found out about that. He went out to the wilderness and said, na, 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 can't catch me. He stuck, he stuck out there for a little bit, and then once the, the city started experiencing uh, plague, famine, flood, the city asked him to come back. He came back into the city. Gregory prayed and interceded with them. Uh, the disasters ended, and the cities said, gotcha, we're going to make you the leader now. So Gregory took a, a page out of Paul's playbook, escaped from the city in a basket, and went into hiding in the forest. The whole city gathered around, ultimately, and entered into a, a, a phase of prayer and fasting that Gregory would be found, come back, and be the leader Ultimately, they do find Gregory, and he finally agrees to be the leader of the church in that area. And what I think is so beautiful about that story is if you, and there's a lot more to Gregory's life, but is, is that Gregory is not seeking the honor for his own sake. And indeed, after he becomes, one of the stories about Gregory is that all his life, after he's the church leader, he always has 12 people that, are, that have dinner with him every night around his table that are taken from the street that otherwise wouldn't have food. That's just something that he did. That was his priority. That was the people that he wanted to honor in his life. And what the city wanted to do was honor somebody who honored that sort of thing. And so there's this mutual way where I feel like they're creating this 
space for a, a world, a culture, a society in which everybody's being lifted up, which I think kind of creates a church that's capable of enduring persecution from the outside because we have such a potent and powerful witness within about who our Lord is. I guess the final, if I can return to, I, the story I was struck with, um, thinking maybe both about wealthy and poor, is that uh, another Christian named Martin of Tours you always got to watch out. He was told about Jesus at a young age. And if you tell somebody about Jesus, he might just get a hold of their life and really mess them up. But his parents tried to send him off to become a soldier. And ultimately, while he's a soldier, he encounters with his company of soldiers uh, a, uh, a beggar who's shivering on the road. And he cuts off, he takes his sword, he cuts half his cloak, and he gives half of his cloak to the beggar there in the road. The rest of the soldiers in his company mock and make fun of him because he's just given away half his clothes. One, he looks ridiculous, and two, he's not going to be as warm as the rest of them. That night, it said Martin goes to sleep and he has a dream, and in the dream he sees angels. And he can see that the angels are all gathered around somewhere, and so he goes close to the angels at that point, and he sees that Christ is standing in the center of all these angels, and he can see that Christ is, uh, is showing them something. So he looks and he finds out that it's half of his robe there, and Jesus is saying to the angels at that point, look what Martin gave me. And he wakes up from the dream and his cloak is fully restored. And I feel like that's such a beautiful image of things that I've experienced here at this church. I know that so many of you give uh, just uh, so generously to God through the expression of this church. And I feel like that's always kind of my hope here. That in that same way that Martin experienced as he gave to that beggar, that what you experience is you find ways to give to God in your life, both here and elsewise. A way in which God is being able to fill both your need and others' needs more abundantly than you would have imagined. This morning, Christ invites us, I was going to say, the wheel of fortune, what's really fascinating in that uh, Siena Cathedral is that it's right there. It would have, everybody would have had to pass over or walk right beyond it to come to where Christ promises to be here for us. And that's precisely what Christ is inviting us also to this morning. To look beyond some of those more superficial things, those things that maybe the world or culture would tell us are necessary for blessedness, and to find it right here as Christ promises to be in his body and blood, the one who was poor for our sake, the one who hungered and thirsted, the one who mourned, who was persecuted ultimately, but then was raised to new life to show us what eternally matters. So come this morning, be invited, receive in joy and thanksgiving the gift that's offered here. Shall we pray together? Lord our God, we're grateful this morning for the gift of your son, for his teaching about where we ultimately find life in you and what you and you alone can give. We thank you, Lord, for all those gifts that you give us in this life, for the beauty that we see around us, for those resources, both in our, our, our honor, our esteem, uh, the things that bring us joy, that bring us delight, that bring us laughter wealth. We just pray, Lord, that we use all those things ultimately to your glory and to your kingdom. 
Might we remember in all these things most your son who surrendered and gave up all those things, who sacrificed all those things to be close, draw near to us, and to reconcile us to you. Pray this in your name.